Okay, are you all ready? Yeah! Uh, well, good evening. Good evening! I couldn't be more excited. <laughs> After uh, 10 weeks of travel throughout the One Association churches, the band is back together. The highlight of my travels has been studying with this team and then getting to hear the teachings that have come out on recordings. I got to say that series section of our app is the best thing that's happened. Of all the churches in the one association, they're being benefited by what's happening right here. I, I want you to know that. I hear the things that we, we talk about kicked around there. I noticed the guy praying next to me is praying through the points of our last message just to let me know, <laughs> you know that he heard it. They're all growing. They're excited, they're excelling, they're accomplishing great things for God. Which brings us to you. Amen. You're blessed in ways that the other churches are honestly quite envious of. Which means that you're responsible for what you're being given and you're held to accomplishing great things for God in ways that they don't quite have. It's a high thing to be shooting for. As we get started tonight, I wanted to let you know a few highlights that I picked up as we were driving, listening to the recordings from last week. Is that all right? Yeah. So I want to start in Daniel 11.32. I think we can put it on the screen. This is out of the NASB. I heard this last week. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know, the people who yadah, the people who experience their God will display strength and take action. Man, could you have a more accurate description of our time? We live in a time of smooth words and flattery, don't we? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And God is raising up a people who yadah. They know and have experienced their God so that they can display strength and take action. This team covered some pretty important aspects last week. They did it in great detail, and they did it with extraordinary passion. It was really beautiful to hear. Were you all blessed by last week? Yeah. I want to roll through a few slides and comment on them to just refresh your memory. The first one was Jeremiah 16 and 1 Corinthians 7. You know, you see the parallels between those two passages. These guys were showing you that Paul was able to read the writings of Jeremiah and interpret his time. Look, men like Paul have always been able to rightly read the words of Jeremiah and interpret how they should react in their present crisis by examining God's holy word and then taking action. It's neat to see them doing the same thing that we're being asked to yeah. do, isn't it? Yeah. It's true in every generation. You're being instructed on how to do the same thing, how to read the law and see what a prophet said about a passage in the law and interpret it in his times. How to read a New Testament writer and see how he's reading the law, the prophets, and the writings and interpreting them for their times. It's teaching us how to do that. The next thing that stood out to me was this prophetic pattern of Jeremiah 15 and 16. The four... Uh, 
the four destroying forces. You know, it's easy to read past that stuff and not catch what's going on. But the team is helping you to identify patterns in the word that repeat throughout history. These patterns are true in your life as an individual. They're true in a generation. And they're true over the course of centuries. If you stray from God's word, death starts to enter your life. I mean, Adam didn't die on the day death entered creation. But I got to tell you, by the time you get to Genesis 4, man is killing man. By the time you get to Genesis 6, they're totally captive to sin. You can see those same patterns rolling through history. The whole goal of that is that we're learning to see them in the Word so that we can make course corrections in our own lives before they progress. Are you making progress in those areas? One of the things that I just love, and there were things that we talked about, and we were trying to decide when to drop these on you, and they began to hint at it. Last week, did you learn that God's name is inextricably associated with, linked to, can't be separated from the deliverance of his people from Egypt? Yes. Right. I, I think it was this next slide, 143 times the phrase out of Egypt is mentioned in the word. What a privilege it was to be introduced to the idea that God's name is and always has been associated with bringing his people out of Egypt. Was that impacting? Yes. Well, I hope you began to grasp that the future redemption that these brothers were speaking to you about is likened unto a second exodus. The Bible actually indicates that where he split the sea before, he's going to dry it up altogether. I mean, it is really kind of an incredible thing. It will literally overshadow anything that he has done before. It causes God to be known by a new name. And then the book of Revelation promises that he gives you a new name. In the coming weeks and months, we'll dig into those things some more. And I imagine your revelation will grow into it further. We're trying to kind of tease you with it right now. But I want to assure you, you can't just Google that stuff and, uh, and find it. You realize how rare it is to be exposed to the level of teaching that you get at LCM? Yeah. Well, that makes us really responsible for the things that we're learning. We want to live holy. We want to live better. We want to raise the standards higher. And I have every confidence that you're growing up in your salvation, that you're going to hit the very high mark of God to which you're being called. The last thing that, I mean, we we were driving into North Texas, and I was listening to this about Yada, and... If we could put that slide up, it's the last verse in Jeremiah 16. Man, I love it. To see three times in one verse, God says, you're going to experientially know me. You're going to intimately know me. Those closing verses of Jeremiah 16 are a supernatural pronouncement. It's one that I believe is something that we should prophesy over you. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. Yahweh says, LCM will... Know me experientially, and I will be intimate and experience them. They will know my hand and my workings intimately and walk away with a new understanding of my name. Amen. That's what I believe we're yeah. doing here. It's, it's uh, kind of an exciting thing to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Look, we're going to pray. 
We're going to jump into Jeremiah 17, and we're going to give you a totally new format tonight. It'll be different than any other time we've done this. And, uh, well, I'm not ashamed to say it's going to be very good. <laughs> Who's an anointed man that wants to stand and pray? Mighty God, we thank you, mighty God, for your Lord. Lord, we thank you for gathering here today, mighty King, to hear the words that are coming forth from your face now. Lord, we thank you for the ambassadors of your word, Lord. Continue to fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, with your Holy Anointing. Lord, come and fill this place, Lord. Circumcise our hearts, mighty King, and our ears, Lord. Our eyes, mighty God, to hear and continue to feel what it is, Lord, that you have for us tonight, mighty King. Your word, we pray. All right, so we're going to pick up by reading chapter 17, and if we can have Miss Jen oh read my that goodness. for us. Have I told you all in a while that there is a sexy grandma in the front row? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've been picking on her a little bit lately. We live in a trailer now. That's, <laughs> that's exciting. So it's literally been 10 weeks since Jennifer's had a bath. <laughs> a shower I'm not saying there's not a shower, huh? <laughs> hey, read chapter 17. <laughs> Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point, on the tablets of their heart and on the horns of their altars. Even their children remember their altars and Asherah poles, beside the spreading trees and on the high hills. My mountain and the land and your wealth and all of your treasures, I will give away as plunder together with your high places because of sin throughout your country. Though your own fault, you will lose the inheritance I gave you. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know, for you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by streams. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worry in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Like a partridge that hatches eggs it did not lay is the man who gains riches by unjust means. When his life is half gone, they will desert him. And in the end, he will prove to be a fool. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are the one I praise. They keep saying to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. I have not run away from being your shepherd. You know I have not desired the day of despair. What passes my lips is open before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let, there be let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. 
Bring on them the day of disaster. Destroy them with the double destruction. <laughs> this is what the Lord said to me. Go and stand at the gate of the people, through which the kings of Judah go in and out. Stand also at the other gates of Jerusalem. Say to them, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and people of Judah, and everyone living in Jerusalem who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring a load out of your houses or do any work on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. Yet they did not listen or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and would not listen or respond to discipline. But if you are careful to obey me, declares the Lord, and bring no load through the gates in the city on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy by not doing any work on it, then the king who sit on David's throne, will come through the gates of the city with their officials. They and their officials will come riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by men of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, and this city will be inhabited forever. People will come from the towns of Judah and the villages around Jerusalem, from their territories of Benjamin and the western foothills, from the hill country and the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings, incense and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not obey me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying any load as you come through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will consume her fortresses. Wow. What a beautiful chapter we have tonight. Yeah. We're going to see that what God is doing through Israel in chapter 17, strategically placed in between chapter 16 and where we're going next week, there is messages of judgment, there's messages of hope, there's messages of deliverance. There are strong warnings in this passage. And in fact, God is weaving together a story that continues to play out through humanity. That story is the story of Israel and God's faithfulness to them. Amen. We're going to see that through Israel's story tonight, we see little bits of our story weaved into what God does through them as well. So as we dig in, we're going to have Linton pick up in verse 1 and read all the way to verse 9. Hey, are you proud of us? We're going to get nine verses right away. Woo! It's usually an hour on the first two verses. Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point. <laughs> Not exactly why I named Judah Judah. Huh? <laughs> it's scripture in the old of the word. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. On the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars, even their children remembered their altars and Asherah poles beside the spreading trees and on the high hills. My mountain in the land, my mountain in the land, and your wealth and all your treasures I will give away as plunder, together with your high places because of sin throughout your country. Through your own fault, you will lose the inheritance I gave you. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know, for you have kindled my anger, and it will burn forever. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wasteland. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one can live. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, Amen. whose confidence is in him. Yeah. He will be like a tree planted by, by the water 
that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when he comes. It le its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. <coughs> the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond fear. Who can understand it? So like Elder Eric said, tonight's going to be a little bit of a different format. There are 27 verses in Jeremiah 17, and we're going to look at them in three topical sections. So they're going to be nine verses apiece for three sections. So we're going to start by giving you a summary of the first nine verses that we just read. In the first verse, we read that there are tools and hearts. God mentioned that their hearts are engraved with an iron tool. In verse 2, he talks about children and altars. He says that even their children remember the wickedness that is going on in the land. In verse 3, God is mentioning Zion and the treasures lost. He's saying, my mountain will be lost, my treasures. In verse 4, he explains that they are enslaved by their own faults. That's revelatory, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> enslaved by your own faults. He says, through your own fault, this has happened. In verse 5, this is the method that got them there. He says, cursed is the one who trusts in man. Their problem is, is they have been trusting in their own flesh. In verse 6, it's the result of their condition, that they would be like a bush in the wastelands. There would be no prosperity. They would be like parched places. In verse 7, God gives a prescription. He tells them, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Amen. Amen. They love to their trust. In verse 8, you see the result of the prescription. Man, God's a pretty good doctor, isn't he? Yes. yes. The result would be, if they trust in the Lord, that they would be like a tree, planted, well watered. They would be without fear. They would be fruitful. And then, that all comes with a conclusion. That is the only right conclusion after all of these things occur, after it occurs in our lives. The only right conclusion after all of those things is that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. After you've had your trust refocused in the Lord after you've repented and gotten right you can look and say man the, my heart is deceitful and can there really be a cure your eyes are open to your condition yeah. now when considering this section of Jeremiah there are a couple of things you need to know to properly understand the themes at play do y'all want to get into that yeah I'm going to hand out a few passages so let me see some hands Deuteron Deuteronomy 27, verse 5 through 6 is going to go to Nick Rosales. 1 Kings 6, 7 is going to go to Nolan. Exodus 31, 18 is going to go to Paul Rosales. Deuteronomy 9, 10 is going to go to Josiah. Luke 11, 19 through 20, that is Cho. Matthew 12, 28 is going to go to Jackie. And then we'll pick up from there. So Deuteronomy 27, verse 5 through 6. Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stone. Do not use any iron tool on them. Build the altar of the Lord your God with field stones and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. So when considering this first section of nine verses in Jeremiah chapter 17, there's just a couple things that we need to lay the groundwork for as we're considering these thematic elements. 
And Deuteronomy 27, in light of Jeremiah 17, verse 1, is a little bit disturbing. Deuteronomy 27 clearly states, Hey, when you're building the altar, don't use any iron tool upon the stones of the altar. So when we read in Jeremiah 17, verse 1, that Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, we can automatically know there's something wrong here. Yeah. When, the t when on the horns of the altars, these, these tools have been used, there is a problem with what is going on inside of Judah. If First, you think we're making too big of a jump, and I know you don't, but in Jeremiah, the first verse, he's talking about their hearts, and in the second verse, he's talking about altars. So he meant for these things to be related. Yeah. First Kings 6, verse 7. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. Did you hear it again in 1 Kings 6, verse 7? Yeah. No tool were, were, was used on these stones for the altar. No tool was used for the altar that is being built for the temple site. And if you go to 1 Chronicles, guess what? You see the exact same thing. So we do have law, prophets, and writings here. Dealing with this issue, using these hardened tools on hardened hearts is a really negative thing. Because that's actually what we're talking about, right? We're talking about tools on hearts. And hardened tools on hardened hearts is a really, really bad thing, a bad image. It's made even worse by the fact that what was being inscribed on the hearts, it's sinful. It's not righteous. We're not building an altar according to what God said. The sinful heart, it's engraved with these tools. The prophet is painting a vivid picture of the spiritual condition of the people. So since we've covered this particular ground before, we'd like to point you in the direction of the solution. Amen. And the solution is found in our next passage, Exodus 31, verse 18. Would you guys like to hear the solution? Yes. yes. Luke, while we're getting ready for the solution, here's, here's the basic symmetry. Okay, He talks to them about their hearts, and he talks to them about altars in the first two verses. This is because if the temple is like your body, the altar of your temple is your heart. Yeah. So that's the parallel that's happening here. And we want to address it because the conclusion that we're driving to by the ninth verse is not everybody else's heart. Your own heart yeah. is deceitful and it's beyond cure. Yeah. How many of you just know in your heart something? You really don't. We know from the word and the spirit of God. Let's go to Exodus 31, 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. All right. We've got a room full of Bible students. Where did Jeremiah get his start in ministry? Under what king? Somebody tell me. Josiah. Josiah. Come on, Jay. What did they find during Josiah's ministry? So if we have a spiritual artist that is painting a picture and he's drawing from the word of God that already exists and happened to be found during his day, what do you think images might be in his mind when we bring up to you an altar, the way that it must be constructed, what tools are being used? He's pointing the people towards the law itself and their interaction with it. 
I'm going to read a piece of this together again for you. He gave him the two tablets of the testimony. Everybody hear that? Yes. The two tablets of the testimony. The tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Do you notice that the law of God that was found during Jeremiah's ministry is called the testimony? Now, the testimony, this wasn't something that was constructed by man's hands. This wasn't something that was formed with an iron tool. What inscribed God's testimony? His finger. You're going to need to hold on to that because that concept is going to develop greatly. But for now, I want to tell you about testimony. Testimony is Hebrew 5715. It's edut. The root for edut, of course, means testimony, but it has the connotation of eternity. If you were to remove vowel points, the Hebrew letters that make it up could mean eternity or testimony. And what is often the case in Hebrew is it's both. The idea that is carried behind the word edut is an eternal testimony, the kind of testimony that God makes, one that is lasting, that is eternal, both from before and for all eternity in the future it exists. An ongoing testimony is the kind of idea here. You tracking with me? Yeah. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 9, 10. Who has that? And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. All righty. You know how in the Gospels we have multiple events that are described either by Matthew or Mark, but they may be describing the same event? Yeah. This is a very similar scenario. Deuteronomy 9 is describing the same event. We have the tablets. They're being inscribed by the finger of God yet again. But do you know what the edut is called here, God's testimony? It's called the commandments. They're synonymous. Describing the exact same event, two books of the Bible that are both inspired have the word commandments and testimony. That's because they are the same thing. God's Amen. eternal, continuing, ongoing testimony is his commandments. Look, and again, this testimony, these commandments, they were not derived by an iron tool. They were derived by the finger of God, Amen. his own work and writing. Yeah. Hey, who is Luke 11? Come on, man. When talking about a demonstration of the kingdom of God in power, Jesus uses the same language as both Exodus and Deuteronomy. He says, finger of God. The same finger that wrote the law, that wrote the testimony, that wrote the commandments. The finger of God is the only instrument capable of properly inscribing the human heart. The human heart is not really supposed to be hard like a stone. And you're not supposed to have to use hardened tools on it. They never should have had to have been used. That's Jeremiah's point. Now, when you consider the parallel passage in Matthew, this gets to be a lot of fun. Did somebody have Matthew 12, 28? Yes, sir. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did you catch the wording change? Yeah. yeah. 
In one gospel, Jesus says, if I drive them out by the finger of God, and in the other gospel, same scenario, same story, he says, if I drive them out by the Spirit of God. What is God's finger? His Spirit. It's His extension of Himself, His character, and His nature, and He can inscribe on you by His Spirit. You're not supposed to have to use hard iron tools of judgment. And you're not supposed to have hard hearts. The law and the commands are and always have been God's testimony, his edut, the ongoing eternal speaking of God's testimony. And they originally came to us by God's finger or God's spirit inscribing them on stone. Somebody say that's good. That's good. As good as that is, That is not the end of the testimony. It's ongoing. So far, we've learned that it should not take iron tools. But you're going to find out it's also not supposed to be written on materials of stone. That is not what God wanted. It's the place he had to start, but it's not the place his testimony finishes. God does indeed write in stone, but eventually... The material that he's writing on itself will be transformed. The tools are not used and the material is substantially changed. It's transformed. Now, if we really want to get a handle on this, we have to cover a passage that's been abused, a passage that's been misunderstood, and Christians have been preaching about it wrongly for more than two millennia. Let's read Exodus 32, 15 through 20. Exodus 32, 15. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony, the edut, in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God. Come on. And if you ask what language that is in, I bet you you can guess. (laughs) It was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Here we see that the testimony is the work of God. In fact, all testimonies are about the working of God. Anytime someone gives a testimony, it is about how God is working in their life. Now, the inscription of the testimony is by the Spirit of God. And it is the work of the Spirit of God. So the law written is spiritual. It is God's Spirit bringing this into effect. Have you ever heard the idea that the law and the Spirit can be opposed to one another? Yes. Not possible. The the law is the byproduct of the Spirit. This is our own misunderstanding of things that were written by men with a different background than you. And we simply didn't understand it. We need to go back and pick up their understanding and you'll find out that your own approach to the law can be contrary to the Spirit. But the law and the Spirit are never contrary to each other. In fact, the law is holy, spiritual, and good because it's the byproduct of the Spirit. And in fact, we're going to see what it means in a little bit to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. In verse 17, if we continue... It says, when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. (laughs) 
Thank you, young disciple Joshua. But Moses replies, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Now, you well-studied Bible students have heard what the Jewish sages have to say about this verse. They say that the testimony became too heavy for him to carry, that all of a sudden when sin is present, the testimony is so heavy, the law is too heavy to carry, so he throws them down and he breaks them. The law, they say, always feels heavy in the presence of sin, and that is true, but it is life and prosperity in the righteous. The law was given by the Spirit to point out sin, but in the life of the righteous, the commandments are not burdensome. You show me a man that doesn't love the law, and I'll show you a man that is standing in sin. That's why he doesn't love it. You don't see life in it? It's because there's not appropriate life in you. (laughs) It's written by the Spirit of God. If you're filled with the Spirit of God, you will see life in it. If you don't see life in it, it's not God's testimony that has a problem. It's yours. (laughs) Now, when we think of this problem that is viewing the testimony as so many uh, theologians do, We unfortunately see this all too often in Christian testimonies. They often go like this. I was bad. In fact, if we asked you to stand up and share your testimony, I'm sure most of you would start this way. I was bad, starting on the bad things. I was very bad, but the Lord saved me. And then I backslid. But by God's grace, I'm still saved. That is not a testimony, friends. We want to push past such shallow ignorance this evening. And we want to get to the deeper issues and better testimonies that God has. Can you believe that God didn't leave his testimony broken there on the mountain? In fact, we're so accustomed to the story that we think of it as being about the broken law, as being about the broken testimony and broken commands. It is all of those things, but the tablets were God's testimony. It was his working, and if you think that God is going to leave his working undone and broken, then you are dead wrong. It is God's writing by his spirit. We are missing that it is his testimony at stake. This is not the people's testimony. This is not Moses, and this is not your testimony. This is God's testimony at stake. So let's go to the second account that's not preached on nearly enough. And that's Exodus 34, 4 through 11. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. Do you see how Moses had to do something there? Moses, there was an action on Moses' behalf. He had to chisel them out. He had to go up to the mountain as God commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Now, the first time the tablets were created by God on the mountain, the second time the man presented the tablets to God on the mountain after they were broken. The man was involved with presenting new tablets for God to do something with. Then in verse 5, hey, do you catch that extraordinary difference? The first time everything is done for Moses. The second time it requires Moses to go present something before the Lord. That's a huge difference. 
At the Battle of Jericho, everything was done for Israel. But every battle after that, they actually had to do something. At the Exodus, everything was done for Israel. But every day thereafter, they actually had to do something. That is the testimony. Not that God did everything for you on the day that you got saved, but everything that has happened since. Come on, on, Nick, help us in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Everybody hold up one finger. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord. Hold up a second finger. The Lord, a third finger. That's three times that the Lord has proclaimed his name in this passage. Put your hands down. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, we had him proclaim his name three times. This is a threefold witness. And it should bring back to your mind Jeremiah 16 and verse 21, where we had the word yada, an experiential knowledge of him, also stated three times. The chapter before is like, you got to know him. You got to know him. You got to know him. And in this chapter, he says, this is my name. I invite you to know me. Now, that didn't all happen in the initial experience. This happens as you have to go back to him when you have screwed up your initial experience. When you have to be re-inscribed. Come on, man. What else did we learn, Nick, at the re-inscription? This is amazing. We have a slide for you. I want to tell you how amazing this is because this is the Lord himself speaking about who he is. Now, in the word of God, when the Lord speaks and says, this is my character we got to pay attention to yeah. what that is. Yeah. Number one, he says, I am the compassionate God. Yeah! I am gracious. Woo! I'm slow to anger. Abounding in love. Abounding in faithfulness. I love that Man. word, abounding. Maintaining love <laughs> and forgiving wickedness. These are the attributes of God that he himself stated to Moses when Moses wanted to know who he was. This is after the tablets. After the law, after the commands had been broken. This is after a redeemed people had failed greatly already. This is God's testimony after, not before the failure, but after the failure of his people. Let, let us tell you something tonight. You got you to gotta get this. Their failure only served to illustrate God's testimony. In the midst of that failure, God shows up again and he says, hey, I'm a compassionate God. Amen. I'm a gracious God. Amen. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love. I'm abounding in faithfulness. I maintain my love and I forgive wickedness. Come on. Tonight, we could just talk about the sinful state of Judah in the time of Jeremiah, but we're not going to do that. We We would have to talk about your sinful state if we chose to do that. But instead, we want to emphasize something completely different. We want to emphasize the testimony of God's character revealed in this process. Come on. Amen. Let's go to verse 8. We're in verse 8 of Exodus 34. (coughs) Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Yeah, I would too. (laughs) O Lord, 
if I have found favor in your eyes. He said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. You know, Moses' reverence here is beautiful. I also seem to think that he's growing in confidence. He's asking if I found favor after he just heard the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love, forgiving wickedness. Something in him is causing him to call out to the God who can redeem and forgive. Verse 10 goes on to say, Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Shut it down. And I thought they were already in a covenant. Yes, yes they were. And the loving, gracious, compassionate God was making a covenant. Almost like it's an ongoing process. You mean he can have a covenant with you and still be making a covenant with you? Yes! Yes, I was saved and I'm still being saved and I will be saved. It's in all of the tenses because he's still doing it. Now remember, this is after coming out of Egypt. He says, before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. They just crossed the Red Sea and God is saying, I will do wonders never before seen. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Man, that's quite the promise. And as we mentioned earlier, splitting the sea, what else happened? We had ten plagues that brought the gods of Egypt to their knees. That's pretty awesome. And he said he would do wonders that had never before been seen. Wonders that would dwarf the first ones, that would surpass them. Look, this is hinting at a topic that we discussed the other day. The whole process is pointing to a second exodus that would be a greater testimony of God's faithfulness and his redeeming, reinscribing, recreating, ongoing covenant with his people. His testimony, his educt, is that he is a compassionate God, a gracious God, one that is slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, that he maintains love and forgives wickedness. Man, the Old Testament God is a God of wrath. Oh, and somebody see that so clearly stated. In the midst of failure, he is still making a covenant and building his ongoing, his everlasting testimony in his people. Now, if you understood what was being said, you'd be more excited. <laughs> that old Christian testimony is, I was a dog, I was a scoundrel, I was, I was, I was, and then I got saved. Would you like to be saved too? Well, that testimony sucks, to be honest. And it sucks for a lot of reasons. You just told me about something that happened 25, 30, 40 years ago or when you were eight at band camp. Why didn't you have the courage to tell me about anything that's happened since then? Yeah. Are you suggesting he hadn't done anything since then? When did our testimonies become about a transaction in the past instead of an ongoing relationship now? See, there is power in this. Because if you sit here tonight and you have dropped the covenant, the word of God to you is... I am making a covenant with you. You pledged your heart to me and I intend to take it. See, somewhere in this, hope better rise in you. He is a gracious God. He is a compassionate God. He's slower to anger than I am. (laughs) 
Hey, if you think this is good, if, is this good? Yes. Well, if you think this is good, it's about to get a whole lot better. Ooh. Jeremiah had a, had a younger buddy. <laughs> he had somebody else that was going through all this with him, although they were in a different uh, age bracket. His name was Ezekiel. And if you ever saw how Ezekiel cooked his bread, you wouldn't buy Ezekiel bread in the store. I want you to hear Ezekiel 36. And we're going to start in verse 26 through 28. Who will read that? That sounds like Rob is reading it. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I know when you're a Christian, you believe you've got your new heart done. Then why do we have four parables of a sower where you have to go till your field of your heart, removing hard places, getting rid of rocks so that your roots can go down? Your heart is new, but it also has to be made new. It has to keep being made new. you got to work the soil of your heart, people. That's how he's making a covenant with you. The tool should not have to be an iron tool of judgment. Embrace the very finger of God, which is his spirit, and he will show you how to continually make your heart new. The material was never intended to be stoned. It's supposed to be a new heart that's free from all stony places in it. Israel's God is committed to his own testimony in the people. Mm -hmm. It is eternal. It is ongoing. It's a continual attestation of his goodness. He will complete the process for the greatness of his own name. All he needs is your willingness. If he does this for them, then there's hope for you that he'll do the same. He likes to magnify his name. He likes to magnify his testimony. And he's going to do it in every tribe, every tongue, and every nation on earth. If you're sitting in this room, you're not too far gone. I may have given up on you, but he hadn't given up on you. If you're here, it's because at some point in your life, You ventured to make a covenant with him, and he's still making that covenant. Ask for his spirit to re-engrave your heart. Now, before we return to other subjects, let's read a few passages about this re-inscription. So we're going to hand these out as well. Emmy, you're going to get Psalm 19, verse 7. Uh, JJ, you're going to get Psalm 78, verse 5 through 6. And uh, Micaiah, you're going to get Revelation 11. 19? Is that right? Yep. Hayes, you're going to get Revelation 12, 11, and then we'll pick up from there. Revelation 19, verse 7. I'm sorry, Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing to the soul, and the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Do you see where it says that they are making wise the simple? As if this is an ongoing inscription as you are engaging with the law, as you are engaging with the Spirit of God inscribing that law on your heart. Come on. 
This is the process of re-inscription. Every time you go to the Spirit of God, every time you return to His testimony that was given, this process of re-inscription and ongoing eternal testimony is making the simple become wise. Not making them arrive at a wise state one time, way back then when you got born again. God's testimony is made greater and greater as you continue in this process of re-inscription. See, God's name wouldn't be great if he did it one time and left you to yourselves. God gets greater glory through your entire life when you wrestle, when you break those commands over and over, but then you put them back together and meet God on the mountain. And he re-inscribes them and makes you wiser than before. Look, I just feel led of his spirit like his finger is poking me. So I'm, I'm going to transfer the impact of that to you. The wisest king who ever lived once wrote the words. If you have exalted yourself and so played the fool, the very man who wrote those words, do you know what he did? Exalted himself and became a fool. If you're in this room and you've become foolish, darkened in your understanding, if you've been given over to a depraved mind, do you know what you must do? Humble yourself, and then God will reach down to raise you up again. His spirit will engrave on your heart what you have lost, and he will maintain his testimony in you. So when we are asked, brother, what's your testimony? We should stand up and say, it's not my testimony. It's his testimony in me. His testimony is not done until everything is accomplished in your life. What he said would be accomplished in your life. Remember, the word for testimony is a dude. It occurs 83 times in at least 57 verses. A testimony is an ongoing attestation, not a one-time event. So, brother, what's your testimony? You should stand up and say how God is ongoing, giving attestation, re-inscribing in your heart this week, last week, the week before, last month, and how he's going to keep doing that because he has shown his faithfulness in that. As Brother Nick gets ready to take us through Psalm 78, we just want to clear up something for the church forever. Never again do we stand up and give a 55-minute testimony that says what a scumbag you were. And in the last five minutes, say, but by the grace of God, he saved me. No. That testimony sucks. I never want to hear it again. It's not any different than anybody other's testimony. The truth is, is we were all depraved sinners. Yeah. Yeah. The testimony is what has happened from the moment he first touched you till now. And it actually takes a little courage. Because those of you that like to say, I've been saved all my life, you're a liar to start with. And secondly... If you could have the courage to embrace it, you've fallen on your face many times and he's picked you up. And you know what? We need to hear it because if he did it for you, he might do it for us. Now, if I asked you guys as you were walking in through the door, hey, what are you here for? I bet nine out of ten of you would have said, well, I'm here for a Bible study, brother. (laughs) And, you know, that's not that bad of a response. But let me tell you. A better response. The best response tonight would be, hey, brother, I'm here to build a testimony. I am here to have an encounter with the word of God where he etches his testimony inside of me. And it's something that will not stop with me. In fact, we need to read Psalm 78, 5 through 6 and see what happens when we continue the testimony of God.
tonight to build testimonies of the Lord together. You know what happens when we continue to build testimony after testimony? When the Lord is continually doing something inside of us, inside of our hearts? Yeah, what he's really after is that the generation after you has the same testimony in a greater measure. That the Lord continues to work through your generations. That it doesn't stop with you. What's the biggest problem of the generation all around us? It's that Christianity is growing cold and stale. It's that God's testimony, his name, it seems like it's diminishing all around us because this generation is not passing on their testimony. It's a transaction. It's not continued yada experiences with the Lord anymore. But we are going to get that right. We're going to do it tonight because we've come to build a testimony. What about Revelation 11, 19? All right, I'm going to interrupt you, Micaiah. <laughs> what happened to Indiana Jones? That's why I can't find that thing. <laughs> Despite the fact that men have theorized about where the Ark of God is, what I want to talk to you about is that the Ark of God has a few different names. We don't have time to cover all of them, but the Ark of the Testimony is one, and that's Edut. It's also called the Ark of the Covenant. You remember how the covenant, the commands, and the testimony all coincided? Well, this ark represents God's testimony, his ongoing covenant, and his mighty, powerful presence. Now, finish the verse as you consider his mighty, powerful presence. Oh, just do us a solid and read the whole verse from the beginning again. Man, there are so many things going on here that I would love to talk about. But we have God's testimony in the heavens and something left to be done on the earth. You guys remember, we've been talking about Elijah a lot lately. And he was going to go see the Lord after having a difficult moment. There was an earthquake. There was a fire. There was a whirlwind. But how did God speak to him? With a whisper. There are a lot of tools that God can use to get your attention. And in Jeremiah 17, 1... They're getting an iron tool because they have resisted his gentle voice. And now he's making his testimony known one way or another. So there are men and women in this room that are my family. Some of you require a two-by-four to learn something new. And it's exhausting to those of us that would rather not have to hit you with a two-by-four. But your unwillingness to hear the gentle voice or the self-correction is what brought you there. But God can inscribe this testimony on you one way or another. This evening and in the days to come, we have a choice. God's good name, his justice, and his kindness will be upheld. But it's up to us on the earth how we would like to make that testimony manifest. Either as the one being inscribed with the iron tool because you refused to hear him, or the one that had a tender heart before him, and was willing to be circumcised, willing to be inscribed. You wanted his name. Saints, what do you want this evening? Then I think it's best we go to Revelation 12, 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Look, the testimony of God in the Exodus was actually what happened after the Exodus, through the reinscription process. 
When they went back up the mountain, they learned more about him. He proclaimed his name three times, and they got seven attributes. His testimony grew as they had to work in relationship with him. The testimony was not a one-time salvation. It is a perpetual deliverance. And they end up being promised a new heart. The testimony in this passage is the life you live after receiving the blood of the Lamb, not the life before the blood. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Their testimony doesn't come before the blood. It only comes after the blood. Now that you got saved, recognize that you're still being saved. And then move on to want to receive the fullness of his image that you've already been credited with. And then move on and chisel out of your stony heart a big place for the testimony of his ongoing work in your life. It should look something like this. Although I have often stumbled, although I have often fallen, it is not beyond recovery. My good and gracious God is empowering me beyond sin. Look, while we're in Revelation, it seems fitting that we show you a parallel between the first eight verses of Jeremiah 17 that we had on the screen there and chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. Would that be all right? Let's look at the summary slide for just a second. In this summary slide, you can see tools and hearts. You can see children and altars. You see the loss of treasures with this mountain. I mean, you can read the screen. We've summarized it for you. Well, verse 3 says clearly that Zion is lost, his mountain. Verse 5, clearly that they are cursed. You following me here? Verse 7 They're told how to become blessed by trusting Yahweh. You getting it? Verse 8, they're likened unto a tree planted by streams of water yielding fruit in and out of season if they'll do these things. Would y'all like to see the testimony of God? All right, Justin's going to walk us through Revelation 22, 1 through 4, and you will see every one of those elements. Revelation 22, verse 1. This is the last chapter of the Bible, y'all. It's it's, it's like the testimony's getting right. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, Yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. At the very end, when God, not going to say completes his testimony, but when it's come to an end for all of mankind, Zion is reclaimed. It's no longer lost. There is no more curse because there are no more men who trust in their own flesh. The people trust in Yahweh as prophesied in Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah says that they will be like trees. Well, in Revelation, there is a tree 
in the middle of the city, and it is planted in a river, and it is bearing eternal fruit no matter what season it is. And that tree is not just for the healing of a few people. It's for the healing of all nations. This shows that God, the God of Israel, will complete his testimony. This is where we ended last week, that God is able to complete his testimony in you. He is able to cause you to come up to the mountain. He is able to reinscribe on your hearts. He's a bigger God than we give him credit for, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. You're wondering, will God accept me again? Of course he will, because his testimony is at stake in you. Now, in regards to Jeremiah 17.9, this is the last aspect of our first section. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? At the end of the reinscription process, this is the point that you come to. This is the only response that one can have after the commands are broken, after they're reinscribed on your heart in the humbling process. And you know who we see this in the best of? We see this best in the man that had the testimony of God in him for all generations of Israel, David. And this comes from Psalm 51, verse 10 through 12. As you get ready to read that, do you know more about David after he started walking with the Lord or before he was walking with the Lord? How about that? (laughs) Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12 say this. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Is this before he was walking with the Lord or after he was walking with the Lord? After. Okay. So King David is crying out to his king. And he's saying, Lord, I need a new heart again. This word create is borrow. It's not an ordinary kind of create like, hey, I'm going to take this flower and I'm going to create some bread later on this evening. (laughs) This is actually a word where only Yahweh God is the subject. When you see bara in the Older Testament, only the Lord can be the subject of that verb. That is because this is a creation out of nothing. He literally takes nothing and he makes something productive and good and holy out of it. That's the kind of new heart that David is crying out for. The heart is deceitful and beyond cure. But Yahweh God can create a new one out of nothing for you. Verse 11 says, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It's almost like he needed that restoration, that newness. He needed that testimony to continue to be sustained and built in his life day after day. You guys ready to move on to our next, our second section of nine verses in Jeremiah 17? Are you learning something? Yes! Linton, why don't you read for us verses 10 through 18? Isn't it good of God to have broken this up for us into three sections with nine verses in each? Like nine gifts, nine fruits. I mean, I don't know. I didn't have a third name. Go ahead. <laughs> I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Like a partridge that hatches eggs, it did not lay is the man who gains riches by unjust means. 
when his life is half is half gone, they will desert him. And in the end, he he will prove to be a fool. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be ridden in the dust because they're forsaking the Lord, the spring of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. They keep saying to me, where is the word from the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. I have not run away from being your shepherd. You know that I have not desired the day of despair. What passes my lips is open before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring on them the day of disaster. Destroy them with a double destruction. Mm. Now, I know you saints are used to line-by-line discussions, and tonight we are going to cover the topic in every one of these. That's all right. We have a slide for you, and although you can see it on the screen, I just feel the need to read it to you. Yeah. Only the Lord knows the condition of your heart. I, the Lord, search the heart and mind. By only the Lord, we mean you don't know the condition of your heart. (laughs) But we do serve a God who can reveal it to you. Number 11, there is a partridge problem. In the end, he will prove to be a fool. Acts class 1 students, you're going to learn about a cultural background. Number 12, the glorious beginning of everything is the throne, the glorious throne of God. 13, written in the dust. There's an association with dust from those that turn away, and we're going to look at that this evening. Number 14, that's Rafa or Rufi. If you don't know what either one of those words mean, you'll learn tonight. You're going to learn. Heal me and I will be healed, the text said. 15, Lack of faith in the word. Man, this is a problem that we need cured. Where is the word of the Lord, they asked. 16. Come on, man. Shepherds that don't run and live transparent lives. Jeremiah said, I have not run away. These shepherds aren't going anywhere, friends. 17. The only refuge. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. We live in a world that wants to prep and stock ammo. And there is only one refuge that you need. That's right. Number 18. Double D's day of disaster, double destruction. Yes. Yes. We have things to discuss with you. Now, this is quite the list and is complete with a partridge and a pear tree. And uh, I think we're going to start out with the partridge this evening. So there is only one other place in the entirety of the Elder Testament where we have this particular Hebrew word used for partridge. You know where it is? 1 Samuel 26. I'm going to pick up reading to you about it, and we're going to gain a better understanding of what Jeremiah means by this partridge. Verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? Well, yes, it is. David replied, Yes, it is, my lord, the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? Reasonable question. (laughs) What have I done, and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord the king listen to his servant's words. If the lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, men have done it, may they be cursed before the lord. They have now driven me from my share in the lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. 
Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Wow. Now, we have a bit of a compare and contrast going on between these two men. We have sinful Saul and David. It could not be any different, and yet they, they both had a function that they were supposed to play. Saul was a king of Israel, but he's been acting in a jealous, evil fashion towards David. And David's never done anything to him. This is why he's pursuing David. He's jealous of the anointing that is on David's life, on the call that is on him, and hates him because he has been righteous. It's reminiscent of Cain and Abel. David has spared Saul's life on several occasions, had the chance to kill him, but did not do it out of reverence for the Lord. And he only worked to exalt the current king of Israel, even though he was being mistreated. Saul had taken credit for David's accomplishments and victories on several occasions. While David walked humbly before the Lord and cried out for his own heart to be changed. You just read about that in Psalm 51. Now, let's take a look at what a rabbinical commentary says about Jeremiah 17, 11. Might give us some insight into the wordplay here. By the way, a cuckoo is a partridge. <laughs> yes, but we're going to say partridge because it's easier for me to say. The partridge draws after its chicks that it did not lay. This is the chirping which the birds chirp with its voice to draw the chicks after it. But those whom the partridge called will not follow when they grow up, for they are not of its kind. Wow. So is with the one who gathers riches, but not by right. Saints, there's something going on here that is akin to ancient Israel, that is a part of their environment, that is a part of the animal life that is around them that Solomon studied for so long. There's this partridge that would have another species lay eggs in its nest. And it would feel as if it was rich and it was great, all the while it didn't belong to it. And then one day, the, the eggs would grow up, and they would eat him out of house and home, leave him with nothing, and then would fly away, and the partridge was left with no children. That's why it's called a fool at the end. Now, a partridge is associated with a man in Hebrew culture that takes credit for someone else's deeds, someone else's offspring. Oh, look at my nest, look at my fruitfulness. But eventually this catches up with the partridge and it's found out that it actually has nothing in the end and is left looking foolish. And we're just talking about a bird here. Not, not, not any man or woman that had the same kind of attitude. But back to Saul and David. This is what we saw with Saul and David. Saul took credit for David's victories and successes and act as if he had produced all of this fruit. But eventually it was exposed and judged for his Sinful way of life. Wow. Now, Jeremiah, so many years later, is drawing from David's conversation with Saul, and his conclusion was that Israel, like Saul before them, had a deceitful heart, that he had led them to their own destruction. Their deceitful heart had led them to their own destruction. This is largely because they were riding on the accomplishments of faithful men before them, faithful forefathers who were righteous, who had produced good fruit and pretending as if it was their own. Man, there are no parallels between an American nation writing on the accomplishments uh -huh. of yesteryear. Wow. But in the end, he's saying, they will be found out for what they are, having nothing, being poor, wretched, and blind, and will be the fool in the end. Wow. Look, uh, 
Verse 13 is clearly, I'm sorry, verse 12, an appeal to the throne of God. From the beginning, the throne of God has been the source of all righteousness. And Jeremiah just, he takes a little aside and he's like, your glorious throne exalted from the beginning, it's our only sanctuary. When he recognizes that they're like a bird sitting on eggs that they didn't actually produce and they're going to be devoured by their own actions, when they realize that, Jeremiah stops in the middle of it and he's like, your, your throne, Lord. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, I would like to focus a little bit on verse 13. Is that okay? Yeah. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. If you really want to understand the spiritual picture that Jeremiah is painting, we're going to need to look at two references from the law to get an idea of why he's associating uh, this time and these things with being written in the dust. And then we're going to look at a Newer Testament application. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. I'm so glad you all want to do it, because we were going to do it whether you wanted to or not. Okay, so, Bosch, would you read Genesis 2, 7? And Elder Charlie, would you read Genesis 3, 14? I figure I cannot go wrong involving fellow elders. <laughs> Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. See? Man was created from dust, but he was always intended to be much, much more than dust. Adam was more than dust. He came to life as the very ruach, breath, or spirit of God entered into him. It's like the finger of God reached into the dust and made him more than he was. Dust then is emblematic of the base, the earthly, the common building material of the day found in the human race before it's touched by the Spirit of God. Now let's look at Genesis 3.14. We could do this all day, but I figure if you don't accept the first two, you won't accept the next 200. Wow. As sin entered into the creation, the serpent was cursed, and so was the dust of the earth. One of the unique consequences was that the serpent would be forever associated with, forever be eating, and forever be, as the New Living Translation says, groveling in the dust. He's going to deal in the base, common, earthly elements that are unregenerate. Dust then is symbolic of the sinful nature of a fallen man, of the consequences of sin, and of the degenerate state of fallen things. Now Justin's going to take us through a Newer Testament application of this, and you're going to see Yeshua Messiah interacting with the very words of Jeremiah. He has the benefit of being the word in Jeremiah's mouth. So when he finds himself in the position Jeremiah was talking about, it's quite easy for it. <laughs> so this comes from John 7, 37 through 39. 
On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given. All you Acts 1 class students had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So when we're studying this in the comparisons between Jeremiah and Jesus, Jeremiah had called Yahweh in Jeremiah chapter 2, the spring of living water. He said that the people had forsaken him, Yahweh, the spring of living water, and they had dug their own cisterns. Well, you see the same thing happening here. Jesus is the spring of living water, and you're going to see how they react to Jesus. Here Yeshua is calling the people to come and drink of his spirit again. This would mean for them to leave the dust, to leave the dust and go on to the spirit, leave the dust and go on to the water, go on to the breath of life, leave the carnal things behind and become participators in the divine workings and empowerment of God. So we're going to pick up in John 8 and you're going to see the response. Those were... Men who rejected Jesus' invitation to drink from the spring of living water. And they were interacting with this Jeremiah-like figure, Messiah. Look at John 8, 311, or 3 through 11. So John 8, verse 3. It says, Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So... These, these same men who in the previous chapter had rejected Jesus as the spring of living water. They, they, he stood up and said it, but he rejected that spring. They're now trying to trap him. They're trying to trap Jesus. Did you guys know that the law requires in this specific scenario that you bring the man and the woman together who were caught in the act of adultery? But... That's not their problem, right? Because justice is really not their motive in this situation. They're trying to trap Messiah. If she was caught in the act, then we know without a shadow of a doubt that the man was there. She's caught in the act. So both of them are clearly there participating. But they only choose to bring the woman. He was not useful to their actual purpose. Verse 5 says, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This is Jesus clearly reenacting Jeremiah 17, 13. And what is he illustrating? He's illustrating to the leaders of the day, you are those same wicked leaders that Jeremiah was speaking to in Jeremiah 17. Those are you guys. You guys are guilty of a greater sin. But what he does next is even more extraordinary than that. Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. 
with the women still woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I, I want you to get this. The accusers themselves were guilty. Since the accusers were guilty, there was no way for them to stand there and bring condemnation on the accused that they were pointing their finger at. They couldn't do it because they themselves were guilty. So this allows the woman caught in adultery, it affords her the opportunity to go and leave her own life of sin. Judah's going to speak to us and read Revelation 12, and this is going to enumerate a beautiful picture of an accuser being dismissed that affords the opportunity for others to go and leave their life of sin. This is Revelation 12. 10. Look, while Judah prepares to do that, our pastors in this church are excellent, and I'm, I'm so proud of them. They're also respectful and kind men. So they would never take a gratuitous opportunity like this to poke fun at other churches. But I'm kind of uh, traveling between churches now, and I'm a guest here. So um, I'm going to do it. You've heard hundreds of sermons in your life about I wonder what Jesus wrote. Maybe he wrote their sins. Maybe he wrote their names. And Christians like to get on forums and discuss those things. Why would you not think that he just did exactly what Jeremiah says he would do? Yeah. Because we don't know the word. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. because we're still dust and we need to be touched by the finger of God and become something more. But uh, that was definitely not the point. And don't associate those foul comments with these gracious men. Leave them on my shoulders. <laughs> Revelation 12, 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God Amen. and the authority of his Christ. Amen. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Yeah! We're not teaching about the ancient serpent that accused Job, that accused David, that tried to get Apostle Peter to fall. But he has been cast down. Is that exciting news? Yes. Does that remind you of what just happened in John 8, where Jesus delivered a woman from her accusers? I would like to remind you of the edut, the ongoing testimony that you read about in Revelation 12 earlier. Go and leave your life of sin. Thanks, we want to tell you that God's miraculous power is available to you, that your accuser has been struck down that you've been given a supernatural power called the spirit of holiness Amen. to overcome in your life. Yeah. Now is the time that we overcome the world, that we leave our life of sin, and you build the testimony of God. Amen. Let's pick up in Colossians 1.22 and hear Paul's commentary on such events. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, yeah. without blemish, and free from accusation. See, devil's not there anymore. Free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, 
The testimony is ongoing as long as you will continue to participate in it. It's not too late for you, friends. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. We are now free from accusation. Now we must go and continue leaving sin, advancing in this new life, and advancing the testimony of God's working inside of us. Amen. You could get really discouraged every time you find something that you shouldn't do that you did or that you should have done and didn't. Or you could go, I have a chance to further the testimony. Amen. Galatians 5.13 says something pretty cool. You, my brothers, you, my brothers, you in here, my brothers, you were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. It's time for us to leave the dust. Or as King James says it, man is butt dust, whatever that is. (laughs) It's time for us to leave the dust behind and move on to the springs of living water. We want to serve our God and build a testimony. So after Jeremiah, after Jeremiah cries out for them to be written in the dust, look what he says in verse 17, or uh, chapter 17, verse 14. Oh, we're about to talk about getting roofied or getting roughed. Oh. <laughs> Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are the one I pray. Do you hear the certainty in Jeremiah there? Yes. Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. He's not a hypochondriac when it comes to God. <laughs> Save me, and I will be saved. Do you see Jeremiah's trust in that? Yeah. Yeah. For you are the one that I praise. The Hebrew word for heal or healed is Rapha. Now we think it's clear at this point that you can continue to live in a state of deception about your heart and life. Like a person who is roofied in a bar and let the devil have his way with you. Oh, oh. Or, are you or, glad there's an or there? Or, I don't want to be roofied. No. Or you can cry out to the Lord, Rapha, heal me, and I will be healed. I'll take Rapha and throw away Rufi. In verse 15, you can hear the lack of faith in the people regarding the word of the Lord. They're asking, after Jeremiah is proclaiming, you're the one I praise, heal me, and I will be healed. They're looking at him, and they're saying, well, where is the word of the Lord? Where is the word of the Lord to be fulfilled? But we love the stance and heart of Jeremiah, don't we? He he was a shepherd who lived transparently and can honestly say, I have not run away. Out of all these things going on, I am not going to run away. I'm going to walk in the ongoing testimony that God has given me. And I will not express doubt on behalf of the word of the Lord. All right, I got one more unction. Are you running away from the testimony he wants to build in you because you're a coward and you can't face the sin that's been happening? How about you just show up and esteem God bigger and let him change your nature? This shepherd didn't run away. 
There are shepherds in this room that won't run away. You run away because you're scared of the only thing that can actually heal you, and you're getting roofied when you should get healed. Come on. This brings us to verse 17. Jeremiah is right, and we would all do well to pay attention to the truth when he says, you are my refuge in the day of disaster. Hey, it's a bad day. It's a day of disaster. But where does he run? To the Lord. Yes. Yes. When does Jeremiah know that he's his refuge the most? Not before the day of disaster. Not after the day of disaster when he's expressed doubt and all kinds of worries and had to repent. In the day of disaster when he chose to run to the Lord. Can we just work this homiletic a little? Is that okay? The problem with getting roofied is you wake up after something horrible has happened, but you act like you don't remember. I've seen some of you with that disease. Get healed and you'll have an eternal testimony forever. Amen. Yeah. All you got to do is ask him. He's more than willing. He will extend his finger into your life and re-inscribe your heart. Getting roofied again and again and again. Well, you end up on a milk carton like that. Let's, uh, let's move on to verse 18. <laughs> verse 18 says, let my... I, hey, I know you guys have been waiting to get to the double D's. Oh, here. yeah. <laughs> we are yeah. finally here. Well, I don't understand. Ray, why is that funny? <laughs> We're talking about days of destruction. <laughs> we got a day of disaster. We got double this. We better just read the scripture. Yeah, yeah. Let let's do that. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring on them the day of disaster. There's our first double D. Yeah. Destroy them with double destruction. Oh, there are the double Ds. <laughs> Guys, you might remember from last week, us talking about the double payment. That was promised to Judah for their sin. You guys remember Jeremiah chapter 16 and verse 18 from last week? Just in case you don't, I'm going to read it. I will repay them double for their wickedness and their sin. Oh. Because they have defiled my land with the lifeless forms of their vile images and have filled my inheritance with their detestable idols. Mm. Now, there's a reason why Jeremiah had to lay the smack down in chapter 16 for the people. (laughs) It was because when Isaiah was prophesying years earlier, we talked about Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 2, about the promise to come in the future that the Lord was going to double over Hmm. the the debt of sin of his people. So guess what that produced in the people? Instead of, man, we need to repent now so that the Lord would bring restoration to us, he would bring that doubling. What it brought was a false sense of security. Hey, we don't have to repent. We don't have to have the Lord chisel our hearts. We don't have to have these things happen because Isaiah prophesied he was just going to double it anyway. So when Jeremiah came along in chapter 16, guess what he had to do? Hey, because you guys are acting so wickedly, because you're taking God's testimony for in vain and you're not building his name and his testimony in your life, you are going to receive double for your sins. Wow. So, let's recap because we're coming to the end of this second section of nine verses. And we're going to keep moving because we got another section to go. So, recap. Verse 10. Only the Lord knows the condition of your heart. That's why he said, I, the Lord, 
search the heart. Even you and I don't know the true condition of our hearts. That's why we need to be constantly presenting our heart to the Lord, repenting and asking him to carve his image upon it once more. Verse 11, there is a partridge problem. That's what happened when you're around other righteous people and you say, oh, look at all the fruit that they're producing and you claim it as your own. That's a partridge problem. That's a partridge problem. Verse 12, the glorious beginning of everything is the throne. Verse 13, written in the dust, associated with dust, those who turn away, that is the snake in the dust, the serpent in the dust. We came from dust, but God had a magnificent plan for us to come. Raphat or Rufi, heal me and I will be healed. I'm going to take Rafa. That's right. Yeah, yeah we're going to take Rafa in this house tonight. <laughs> Amen. Lack of faith in the word. Where is the word of the Lord? That is our foundation for everything. Verse 16 was awesome. Yeah. Shepherds that refuse to run away. Amen. Yeah. Shepherds that, shepherds that refuse to hide sin, but choose to live in transparency with everyone around them. It doesn't sound like Jeremiah hid in his house because of coronavirus. <laughs> Verse 17. The Lord, the only refuge. Jeremiah crying out, you are my refuge in the day of disaster. And verse 18 are double D's. The day of disaster and double destruction. Amen. So it's 9.04. Come on. You I, with me? Yeah. Yes. We've got one section. Come on. Oh, let it loose. One section. Now in this one section, we're going to get into a few topics. Okay. But I think it might be worth your time. Do you? Yes. yes. Well, Brother Linton, if you would pick up reading for us. 19 all the way to the end in verse 27. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and stand at the gate of the people through which the kings of Judah go in and out. Stand also at all the other gates of Jerusalem. Got some ancient gates going on. Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and the people of Judah and everyone living in Jerusalem who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day. Or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring a load out of your houses or do any work on the Sabbath. But keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. Yet they did not listen or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and would not listen or respond to discipline. But if you are careful to obey me, declares the Lord, and bring no load through the gates of the city on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy by not doing any work on it, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of the city with their officials. They and their officials will come riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by the men of Judah and those living in Jerusalem. And this city will be inhabited forever. Mm. People will come from the towns of Judah and the villages around Jerusalem, from the territory of Benjamin and the western foothills, from the hill country and the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices grain offerings, incense, and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not obey me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying any load as you come through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will consume her fortress. Wow. Man, that's quite the offer, isn't it? Yes. We're going to put another slide on the screen, and I'm going to go over some of the larger topics that are being discussed here. 
Anybody remember the ancient gates yeah. that our pastors gave us? Yeah. yeah. Gates are government, the seat of power, the place where men ruled and authorities dwelled. The gates of the people through which the kings enter. It's the first thing that's stated in 19. Verse 20, the government must hear the word. I want you to be standing at these gates, the seat of power, and I want them to hear what I have to say, this offer. 21, the government must return to the Sabbath. A Sabbath day that is honored at the gates, the seat of power in Jerusalem. 22, people, not just the leaders, but everybody else yeah. must return to the Sabbath. Biden can't do it all for you. <laughs> A stimulus check's not going to fix it. Your houses, your forefathers. He's letting you know in every area of life, this is what I'm looking for. 23, you have been historically unfaithful to this command. It's not a new thing. You've consistently demonstrated this sin problem, and you must correct it now. They, they did not listen or pay attention, it says. 24, consider what obedience would bring. And this is like reading about the law setting life and death before you. Yeah. Like standing before Samuel or Joshua or so many of, and of old. He's saying, if you obey me, it will go well with you. If you do not obey me, it brings a curse. Now, 25, uh, 25, the kings on David's throne forever. Mm. Guys, this is referencing the Davidic covenant. Yeah. That if you're faithful, the king that I promised, the one line that Messiah is going to come through, they will be entering through your gates. And there are such large overtones here about the hope of the resurrection, the hope yeah. of Messiah that he's speaking to them about. Yeah. 26, the regathering of Israel. People will come to the house of the Lord. This is after the northern and southern tribes have split. This is after the northern captivity. And he's talking to them about being reconstituted if they will do what is right. 27. Favor or fire. That's how it's summed up at the end. There's a choice being laid out between the two. Now, we're going to begin with making some associations for you. So... I promise to be expeditious about this. We really want these Bible studies to be timely. And you heard a lot of Sabbath talk. And so you could get concerned. It will be those shifty, beady-eyed Seventh-day Adventists knocking on your door. <laughs> to properly engage these verses. They do have shifty, beady eyes. Yeah, they do. They really do. To properly engage these verses, you have to understand a couple principles about the Sabbath. Okay, and, and if you just grasp two, uh, and there's many of them, you'll get everything that you should impact your soul about these verses. Okay, do you want to learn? Yes. Somebody read. Who's going to read? Paul Rosales, Genesis 2, 2 through 3. Who else? Asad the lion. Yeah. Exodus 31, 12 through 13. From these, we're going to grab two principles that will help you put... Those nine verses in perspective and understand why they're being called to this. Genesis 2, 2 through 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested <coughs> from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. See, the God of Israel is the creator of everything. Yahweh himself observed a Sabbath in the week of creation. 
So to observe the Sabbath is to acknowledge both that he is the creator and that you want to be like him. Wow. Yeah. You want to do what he does. Yes. First and foremost, that is the Sabbath principle. He's the creator and you want to be like him doing what he does. Would you like to hear the second one? Come on. Exodus 31, 12 through 13. Come on now. The Sabbath was to be a sign between Yahweh and his special nation, Israel. And what was the sign? That the creator was making them holy like he is holy. Many things are associated with the Sabbath. But first and foremost, it is an acknowledgement that you know the creator and you want to be like him. Amen. Secondly, it is a sign that you belong to him and that he is making you holy. Everything in these last nine verses has to be read with those two thoughts as the predicate for the statement being made because he doesn't have an ax to grind that you're a dirty Sunday worshiper. He has an issue with the rejection of wanting to be like God and wanting to honor a sign that they will be made holy. Can I walk through those verses with you quickly? Yes. Then we're going to get to something extraordinary. Justin's going to talk to you about kindling fire. In verse 19, then, it would be that you, your gates, which are your government, they must acknowledge the creator, that they must acknowledge that you want to be like him. That there is a sign between you and the creator that he's making you holy. That's what the government of Israel is supposed to do. In verse 20, the government of Israel needs to hear the word of God. In verse 21, your government must return to these truths. In verse 22, the people must return to these truths. In verse 23... Historically, you've abandoned Yahweh as the creator. You have given up on being like him. And you have neglected the sign that says he makes you holy. In verse 24, consider what it would be like if you obeyed me as the creator. If you wanted to become like me. If you honored the sign of making you holy and like me, what would it look like? Verse 25, a picture of what it would look like. There would be kings on David's throne and Jerusalem would be inhabited forever. Verse 26, God himself would regather all the house of Judah into the house of the Lord. Verse 27, this would be my favor on you. But if you will not have it in this generation, say this, this generation, generation, then you will have fire instead. Wow. So, Linton, read chapter 17, verse 27, one more time. But if you do not obey me to keep the Sabbath day holy, by not carrying any load as you come through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, 
Then I will kindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will consume her fortresses. I will kindle a fire, he said. This reminds us so much of Jesus in the same situation, surrounded by men whom Jesus said, you tie up loads and put them on other people, but you yourselves are not willing to help them carry it. You have so many objections about the Sabbath and what it's really about. And this is what Jesus said about that nation. It's Luke 12, 49 through 51. He said, I, I have come to bring fire on the earth. Jeremiah said that God would kindle the fire, but Jesus said, I have come to bring that fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. (coughs) See, what is Jesus doing? He's like Jeremiah. He is a man standing up who has been inscribed on and being re-inscribed. And Jeremiah is having a winnowing fork in his hand, separating the wheat from the chaff of of his day. He is separating those who wanted to be like God from those who wanted their names written in the dust. From those who were being accused and all they could do was accuse Jeremiah and the other men of God. And you see Jesus saying the same thing. Can you imagine Jesus saying how I wish it was already kindled? That's terrifying, isn't it? What is Jesus really saying? He's saying, oh, how I wish that there was a distinction already. How I wish that there was that dividing line between men who are being re-inscribed. I wish it was clearly, clearly illustrated between those who are just faking the inscription upon themselves. But Jesus said, I have a baptism to undergo. Do you know what that was like for Jesus? It's the same process that Jeremiah had to go through. That being rejected like a sheep led to the slaughter. Oh, how Jesus wishes that that dividing line was even here right now. That there was a clear distinction between men who are being re-inscribed. But you know what? It's all too easy to be around men who are being re-inscribed and think you're on the mountain with them. It's a partridge problem. Jesus is crying out, and he's crying out right now. I wish that that fire was already here. And the church of God has to take that same passion and say how I wish that fire was already here. And we have to be responsible to go through the same baptism like Jesus did. Now, our closing thoughts this evening come from a man who lived after Jeremiah. Yeah. We think he understood the emphasis of Jeremiah's words, which were God's words. That man is Nehemiah, and this comes from Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 15 through 22. Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is before or after Israel was coming back from captivity. After. You guys keep that in mind as we read Nehemiah 13, verse 15. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Can you believe that? And bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. I can't believe it. It was the very thing that had gotten the whole 
nation kicked out, all of Judah and their tribes kicked out in the first place, was the desecration of the Sabbath. Verse 16, men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah. Amen! And I said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Look at verse 18. Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Nehemiah is standing there in, there in this day and he's saying, he's saying, hey, what you guys are doing right now is the very thing that got us in captivity in the first place. So stop it. I'm going to take a stand like Jeremiah did in his day, and I'm going to say, go back and read. Go back and do what your God said about the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Let's continue in verse 19. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. Praise God. Praise God for a righteous man. A shepherd that won't run away. Somebody that will stand up for what is righteous and will not back down. Somebody who understands the sin of the past has learned from it. And continues to increase the testimony of his king by what he does. I stationed some of my own men at the gates. That wasn't their job. But as soon as... Nehemiah saw what the need was, it became Nehemiah's job. Yeah. Yeah. It became the, the job of Nehemiah's men. We're going to take this into our hands because we need righteousness. Amen. We need the testimony of our God. It's a good thing, Nick, that we've never had a problem again since his day with people that repeat <laughs> the same behavior that has already brought judgment in their lives. I mean, we don't have a problem with reoccurring backslidden relatives. We don't. It's a good thing we don't have that kind of stuff ever happen here. It's a good thing that this scripture is completely and wholly inapplicable to you. No, it's a good thing there are shepherds that will not back down. That don't mind being accused of being a little rough around the edges. You have no idea how serious Nehemiah is going to get. Oh, my goodness. Guys, it's not somebody else's job. It's not somebody else's responsibility. It's not the responsibility of your pastor, your elder, or your brother. It's your responsibility. You have the word of God living in you. You understand what the standard of God is. We need to rise up and take the stance of Nehemiah tonight. Yeah! To stop saying, hey, it's somebody else's responsibility to have me or anybody else around me walking in righteousness. No. No, the responsibility rests upon your shoulders. It wasn't just Nehemiah stationed there. It was Nehemiah and the people that Nehemiah was responsible for because he rose up and knew that he was the leader for the time. He was the man for the job. Nehemiah, just like Jeremiah, was a shepherd that refused to run away from the problem. 
But he said, I'm God's ambassador. I am the person on the earth that the Lord will use for this. Come on. Amen. You want to continue in verse 20, Judah? Sure. Judah was quite passionate about this earlier today. He was burning. We got saved again today during our study. <laughs> After all of that, once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. They're waiting. They're looking, hoping that he's going to bend on his standard. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. I'm not sure he was Pentecostal. I think he might have meant that in a different way. You know, I think we're going to look a little further into how he meant it. But it's worth considering at the end of our evening, the things that repetitiously have attacked you in your home, like sinful backsliding at work, with lost relatives, with deceit, with sexual immorality. The things that you let sit outside of your walls for your inopportune time and you have failed to take a firm enough stance with. I'll be real frank. Some of you are so close to the favor of God and some of you have the fire of God burning right alongside of it. And not the youth group kind. The kind that will consume you. No, the kind like the partridge where what you're sitting on is actually going to grow up and devour you. Mm. We're at a place where we've reached higher levels of ministry, devotion, than I have ever seen before. And we're also watching unrepentant sin in many of your lives come out as a result of it. And it's bringing us to a place where we have a choice. How do I handle the merchants that are lurking outside my walls to drag me back to the sinful condition that I once was in? Because ignoring it, pretending that it's not there, trying to wait a few years to see if it just passes you by isn't working. It's time that we lay hands on the things that have been devoured. Put it down! Drop it! From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. There's a clear scriptural example of a man who recognized the warnings of God in the past and applied them to his house, to his city, to his people in his day, in his time. I'm looking at men of God that it's time for you to rise up into the calling that you have. To take the hands that he made you to go to war with. And stop playing patty cake with sinful relatives and sinful thoughts in your home. It will devour you. Of course, the favor of God is also so close. The end to lurking enemies that have been prowling and stealing your fruitfulness for the last decade. And we've all watched it. Could be sent home never to return on the Sabbath. Amen. 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 It is up to you. Yeah. In Jeremiah's day, God himself laid hands on the people in the city. Now, Nehemiah, a man of God who knew God's character, does not want things to get to that place. Man, this is so much like the son that never learned discipline from his father, so he's experiencing it from the Lord. Nehemiah, like a good father, decided that he was going to show the people that he was responsible for the right standard prior to reaching the point where God's wrath is kindled beyond turning back. He's God's ambassador, the kind of ambassador that embodies God's emotions, God's deeds, God's actions, God's standards, and cares nothing for the sympathies of sinful men. He's laying hands on the men to prevent them from incurring wrath and kindled fire on the whole people group. Man, that's a word that is sobering that we should take to heart. I'm tired of having conversations about you playing patty cake with the same subjects over and over again. 
You talk with Pastor Matt, Pastor Wade, Elder Faj, Elder Charlie, and it's still working its way around because you refuse to lay hands on it. Come on. Well, I'm saying tonight's your night to stand up and be a man. Yeah. yeah. And do what God has called you to. The one who reflects the image of the Father. And you will see the favor of God on your generations. We got a testimony to build. Yeah. A testimony in God's name. Your testimony's still growing. Tonight can be the night that you grab that sin and you choke it. You put it down. You can kill it forever. Amen. Look what Nehemiah does next. 22, then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. We, like Israel, are commanded to be a nation of priests. We must purify ourselves to rightly imitate God in all of his ways, to be his signs, to endorse the signs that he is making us holy. Man, Nehemiah is like our pastors and our elders. Yeah. Yeah. But it's time for the Levites of the house to rise up and take their yeah. positions. You've got to rise up! We also, like Nehemiah, must rise to create generations of disciples who will do the same thing. We have to replicate this kind of standard, and it's not someone else's job to do it. And my favorite part of this, remember me for this also, mm. oh my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Yeah. Man, if you want to be remembered in eternity, if you want him to know your name when you go to see him, yeah. spend your life remembering his Sabbath, his principles, his standards, and turning wrath away from men and producing righteous disciples. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah is praying in accordance with God's word. He remembered it, and he's trusting that God will remember him. Man, I want that to be the story of every one of your testimonies. Your ongoing walk of transformation being re-inscribed again and again as you remember what he has called you to walk in. If you can live a life that is constantly being inscribed, constantly remembering his testimonies, his commandments, you have a guarantee that you will be remembered in the end. Amen. He spoke to you in the beginning. He'll speak to you again. Amen. That's the nature of his word. He saved you in the beginning. He will deliver you again. That's his nature. That is his testimony. And you want to participate in that, don't you? Yes. Look, we, uh, we've made it our real ambition to close by two hours. And we're at one hour and 58 minutes right now. So we're going to make it. And I'm not going to tell you that in Revelation 22 that we have gates that are honored. I'm not going to tell you that the offspring of David is on a throne. I'm, I'm not going to go through the way in which they accept the spring of living water. Because you have Revelation 22 in your Bible and you can see that. Instead, I'm going to invite Pastor Matthew to come close us in prayer. He knows you best. And if you're really angry when this is over, I want you to deal with him or Pastor Wade, not me. 